Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I've got a great show planned for you. I can hardly wait to get things started. Rob Blue is going to be my first guest. I'm also going to be joined this hour with, by Kim Cotola, giving me the latest in pro-life issues. And then hour two, Dr. Carrie Headington is going to be talking about the divinity of Jesus. That's the plan for today. I can hardly wait to get things started. Rob Blue is always my guest on Tuesday to get things started. He's the executive editor of The Daily Signal. I always encourage you to go to dailysignal.com. Rob, welcome back. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be back with you. So the RNC convention, uh, some of the biggest fireworks happened uh, after the fireworks show when people were leaving, and some of the protesters really got uh, pretty uncivil. Well, yes, uh, Bill, it seems that in uh, in Washington, D.C., it's not unlike other cities, uh, Los Angeles or Kenosha or or Minneapolis, where uh, where things have been really tense. Uh, In this case, though, you had a situation where there were elected officials and, and many people who were obviously dressed for the occasion at the White House on Thursday night who found themselves in a situation on the street with many protesters. So they were easily identifiable. And one of them was Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, who has had quite uh, quite a past couple of years. You might remember that Rand Paul found himself in the hospital after his neighbor attacked him. Uh, he was uh, one of the first members of Congress in the Senate to uh, to have the coronavirus. Um, and uh, and he said he felt like his life was in danger. He and his wife, as they tried to make their way from where the bus had dropped them off uh, to their hotel. And because of the street uh, blockades and everything else that was going on, he made the decision, an ill-fated decision, uh, to walk and really uh, relied on the police to escort him safely to where he needed to go. Uh, But it is scary. Uh, I would certainly not want to find myself in a situation like that. And I think that as Americans see uh, this continuing, it's no longer just something that happened over the course of one weekend in, in May or June, but it's continued now month after month uh, it's uh, it's begging the question, you know, when will this end? Certainly can't predict what might have happened to Rand Paul and his wife, but had he not had that police protection, it could have uh, he better could have been back on the ground again. Th- that's absolutely true. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we have my colleagues at Heritage Action have made such a big push. Uh, for uh, supporting the police. Uh, This is exactly the type of time when you need police. Uh, They've launched what they call the Police Pledge. They've had uh, more than 30,000 Americans sign the pledge, and uh, including many uh, elected officials who who put their name, name on it as well. And I think that it's uh, it's a time when uh, we we recognize that there there are police officers who find themselves in very difficult situations and are doing their best to protect the community. And uh, and that is certainly something that uh, we can all be grateful for. 
And uh, yes, uh, there there may be some actions that uh, that we question, and there could be reforms that we we suggest. But at the same time, I think some of the radical steps that you've seen uh, from from politicians to uh, dismiss or, or demean the police uh, are unfortunate because they are, after all, uh, called to serve us, uh, the taxpayers who um, who who are there uh, in many cases uh, defenseless, and whose uh, whose help we we need we need theirs uh, in a time like this. Yeah. Rob, I always feel like I get good information when I go to dailysignal.com. And there's an interesting, otherwise it's really hard to get good information what's going on. I know there was a, a former Marine veteran and, and Portland uh, resident named Gabe Johnson who heard gunshots in his apartment Saturday night and thought, I'm going to go see what's going on. And he was able to that's report right. what was actually happening there. And that's at dailysignal.com. That that is uh, well. One of the things that I I, I love most about uh, about this uh, new format that we're in, and the fact that we can do things so well uh, virtually, <laughs> right? We don't have to have everybody in the same studio necessarily. So we've been doing so many of these tremendous interviews on our Daily Signal podcast. I, I feel like I've got a little bit of uh, the, the radio bug in me, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I think you do. Uh, not not just from your show every week, but the fact that uh, we can connect to people like Gabe Johnson to tell their story. So I would encourage your listeners to to go hear directly from Gabe and what it was like. Uh, this is the first, uh, the, this is one of many, I should say, stories that we've done from people who have found themselves kind of in the center of the action. Uh, Jason Rance, uh, Andy No, uh, Gabe Johnson, all people who are, are quite brave to put themselves in a situation like this and uh, and sometimes find themselves in the center of uh, of the action and, and violence and, and our prayers go out to those people who who are certainly uh, you know taking this action I think it's really important for people to to document what's going on um, and and so the American people can see with their own eyes uh, how how radicalized some of these uh, these people and groups have become. And and how quickly they can mobilize. Uh, you saw this yeah. yesterday in Los Angeles, for instance, when when uh, an individual, a uh, 29 year old man, was shot, and within hours, the Black Lives Matter group there had mobilized uh, protesters to come out and have a, have a conflict with uh, with the police, the sheriff's uh, deputies there. So, uh, certainly uh, a situation that we're, we're keeping a close eye on. And uh, I, I should should put a plug if if you have listeners out there who who have experience, we'd love to hear their stories as well. You can always. Uh, send us an email, letters at dailysignal.com, and uh, and we'd uh, we'd love to hear from you. It's uh, it's those types of stories that I think make a difference. Do you have a highlight from uh, Gabe's story that you could share? Or should we just yeah, well, encourage all listeners just to well, listen to the whole podcast? Well, well yes no, certainly. Uh, yeah, yes to both. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> I will never never discourage your listeners from checking out the, the Daily Signal and, and subscribing to our podcast on on Apple Podcasts or, or wherever you, you may listen. But um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's really a shocking story to to hear him tell. And you know, he 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 talks about uh, you know as he was coming. Uh, I think the part that stuck out for me is as he was going back, um, uh, he gets jumped by these these. Uh, these protesters who, you know, are trying to roughhouse him and, and punch him, uh, knocking him on the ground, uh, stomping mm-hmm. on him. And, and as he's describing the story, Bill, you're almost, you almost feel like you're there and, and you just picture like, what would I do if I was in this situation? And, uh, and, and I have to say that um, there, was, there was an incident just recently in the Washington, D.C. area where these protesters came up to a restaurant uh, where where the diners were eating outside, obviously in this this age of COVID, you know, there's a lot more uh, people who are dining outside just to to keep themselves safe and just get in their face and start yelling at them, and you you wonder 
you know, what would I do in a situation uh, if, if if I found myself, you know, just in the in the moment uh, and my family, you know, confronted like this? And so I think it's important for all of us to be prepared if we find ourselves in a position like this, uh, because uh, it's so easy for people to to be doxed uh, and doxing is, you know, where they'll go and they'll dig up all this dirt and they'll try to uh, to, to shame you and, uh, and embarrass you and put you you and your family at risk. And so we're in a different world now with uh, with the power of social media and, uh, and and video and the fact that everybody uh, basically is a storyteller and a reporter on their own uh, with uh, with the tools that they have at their disposal. Mm-hmm. Rob, when I look at California's unemployment rate, it is right now among some of the highest in the nation. And are people trying to get back to work? And what are the California politicians doing to make it difficult? Well, yeah, they're they're doing all the wrong things. Um, it seems you know, it's that interesting. Way. It's interesting that the as the California legislature was um, kind of a, you know wrapping up its work, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, that you saw uh, from, from some uh, on the on the left or who who you know maybe on, on the, the politically opposite side is they didn't do enough. And uh, you know, sometimes uh, you're you're actually rooting for them to to not do more harm uh, because sometimes they take actions that that actually will limit the opportunities uh, that, that Americans have. And in California, we've seen this go on for decades now, where they put in place uh, regulatory barriers, they put in place uh, more government mandates and restrictions that uh, limit uh, the ability for California workers to, to earn more income, to have the flexibility to, to do their jobs. Um, and yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, the In Los Angeles County, uh, and we know the, the, the that populous area, the unemployment rate was 17.5% in July. I mean, that is a significant number uh, mm. impacting millions of, uh, of, of unemployed workers. And so what the California legislature really needed to do was to, to we've talked about this on the show before, the, the, these gig economy workers, uh, the people who are at Uber or the people who you know consider themselves independent contractors, may have multiple different jobs. Maybe they have several different part-time jobs that they're filling. They're 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 not doing things in the traditional sense that what we think of as a as a nine to five worker. And uh, and California really put some some really grave restrictions on what they uh, on what they're able to do and how they're able to live their lives. And so. It's unfortunate because at a time when we should have more flexibility, uh, California seems to be moving in the opposite direction. And it seems like uh, gig workers, you know, they they don't put money as the highest calling in their life. You you can't get them into a corporate job. A lot of them go, nah, I don't want to do that. I want to just be a freelancer. That's right. Well, and so they want that flexibility that comes with yeah. with a position like that. And unfortunately, the, because of this this law, the uh, Assembly Bill Five uh, that California passed, um, you know what you found is that you actually had hundreds of thousands of of drivers that work for places like Uber and Lyft lose uh, lose out on income at a time when they frankly need it most. Uh, we shouldn't right. be putting these restrictions in place, and so. My colleague, Rachel Gresler, who, who closely studies these issues and has testified before Congress and is really an expert on, on how, um, you know, oh, you know we, we talk about the future of work in America. I mean, talk about uh, uh, the opposite direction that you want to go. Uh, we want to be creating more opportunities for Americans right now, uh, not putting restrictions in place. And I think this is a short-sighted move on California's part. And hopefully, as we know, California can sometimes be 
uh, a trendsetter for the rest of the nation. And this is one area where, where I hope uh, other states don't follow through because it would be devastating for so many people who, who look for those different opportunities, particularly at a time, Bill, when, when COVID-19 has limited uh, some of those traditional opportunities. Right. Uh, we should be encouraging people. You know, <laughs> our family, uh, as, as you know, we had a baby. Um, her birthday is tomorrow, actually, her first birthday. Wow. Um, and so, uh, so happy birthday to Savannah. And uh, we um, we needed to, we needed recently to get a new new car uh, because uh, with a family of five now uh, <laughs> the the smaller commuter car was just not cutting it. In fact, we couldn't even fit all five uh, people in the car, three kids in the back seat because you know with just the way the configuration was. So we went shopping for a minivan and. Uh, it was a completely different experience than than what I've ever had before. Almost everything was done online. The, the dealer the dealer offered you know to bring the car to our, my house for a test drive. They delivered it. I didn't have to. I basically didn't even have to go to the dealership at all. And I think that you know so many people are finding different ways of doing things uh, in the economy today to make things work. I know that for instance, I've talked to my parents, Bill. They don't they don't go out to eat anymore. They just get takeout. You know, they're trying to support their local restaurants, but they're just doing it in a different way. And so this all goes back to this underlying notion that the governments, particularly state and local governments, need to be doing more to encourage uh, different ways to to operate and different ways for our economy to flourish and not put restrictions in place. Yeah. And if it goes too long, it's going to become the new normal and people may not go back to some of their old habits. And I think our country needs some of our old habits going out to restaurants and uh, going to concerts and things like that. We certainly do. And look, and that's why at, at the same time, like I, I just it's it's laughable that, um, you know, you you have a situation where there are um, <laughs> so many people. I mean, I, you take the, the president's speech last week at the White House where the media just railed because they didn't feel that there were enough safety precautions given. There, there weren't COVID tests for all 1,500 attendees, and some people chose not to wear a mask. And, and look, the, we've talked about mask mandates and, and vaccine mandates and all those other things that the government w- wants to impose. I think that ultimately it comes down to personal responsibility. And I think that as we've gone through these past six and seven months and people have learned, you know, how to better uh, deal with this, this, uh, this novel coronavirus, which we didn't know a whole lot about, uh, they've, they've, they've adjusted and they figured out new ways. Uh, the kids are going back to school next week, for instance. And I felt that the teachers were a whole lot more prepared uh, when, when we had our parent-teacher conferences this week uh, than they were in the spring because they've had the summer mm-hmm. to plan for it. And so uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I want to get back to normal as quickly as possible, but uh, we, we have to do so in a safe and responsible way. And I think that ultimately comes down to the individual making the right choices as opposed to relying on government to do everything for us. I want a picture, Rob, of them going back to school on that first day with you driving them in the new minivan. Well, you know, <laughs> well, we'll, we'll work. If we, they, they can actually walk to school, which is okay. nice. But, but I will tell you, I will tell you next Tuesday when we talk, it will be their first day of school. So we can get a, we can get a first day of school report right, right as it's happening. <laughs> that sounds good. Let me take a little break. Rob Bluey is my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. Go to dailysignal.com. We'll be right back. All right, we are back with Rob Bluey, executive editor of The Daily Signal. Uh, Rob, it seems like the mainstream media kind of ignored the 
Trump administration uh, role in, in negotiating this peace agreement between Israel and, and UAE? Yes, uh, certainly. I mean, it, uh, <laughs> it's kind of a big you know, deal, isn't it? What a big deal, uh, and, yeah. and 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 how how it was underplayed. I mean, you even had a situation where where some of Trump's biggest critics, uh, political critics, uh, were, were forced to come out and acknowledge the significance of this. But uh, notice how quickly it, it uh, disappeared from any headlines and, or, or was just ignored entirely, Bill. Uh, you know, this is one of the things that I think frustrates the American people and why when, they, when they're asked about trust in media, uh, the ratings continue to be uh, so low is because they, they just lack the confidence that uh, the media is going to to tell it straight and uh, and present a, a, a fair story, uh, you you saw this um, just within the last twenty four hours when it came to coverage of some of the protests. Uh, uh, obviously, um, you know Joe Biden uh, hit the campaign trail, made a stop in in Pittsburgh. Uh, President Trump today in in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, I don't have to to tell your listeners to take a look at the the, the coverage of those two events uh, to see. Uh, how how different uh, <laughs> it was, uh, but when it comes to this peace deal, I mean, you talk about something that the Trump administration has been working on for a number of years, and and the amount of effort that, that goes into something like this is is truly substantial. And I think uh, Jared Kushner uh, rightfully gets uh, gets credit for this, along with so many others who who put uh, in the time and effort to to make it possible. Um, you know, it's uh, Middle East peace is one of those one of those things that is always so difficult. And, and as you and I have seen throughout our lifetime, uh, the challenges that uh, that are, are, are present with uh, with some of the countries there and the longstanding tensions. So so certainly a, a well-deserved accomplishment and something that deserves recognition. And again, uh, to, to learn more about it, I encourage your listeners to, to go to The Daily Signal, because unlike some other outlets, we've sure tried to give it uh, the attention that it deserves. Yeah, and it's hard to give uh, the president any kind of attention in election season because that would appear to be good news. Right, exactly. That, right, you're, you're, you're right. Um, it's a, what are we down to about 60 days now, Bill? Uh, like that, you know, yeah. it's, it's that critical period. And, and in fact, it's always the right after Labor Day that, uh, you know, traditionally we find that the American people tune in uh, to what's going on. The, the presidential debates take place. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunities uh, for for engagement. Uh, we um, we know that there's uh, this this year is going to present its challenges. Uh, there's a lot of talk about mail-in voting. Uh, there's uh, there's certainly concerns about whether the post office can can handle uh, the, mm. the the volume of mail. I know you've had my colleague Hans von Spakovsky on the show to talk about some of these these challenges and. Uh, and all of these things, um, because of the way we vote as a state by state, each state has its own rules. Um, it's going to make for certainly an interesting election night this year. And, uh, and, and certainly leading up to that, I think Americans can do everything on their part to, uh, to make sure that they're exercising their, their voice and, uh, and, and exercising their right to vote. I mean, it's possible, Rob, candidate A could be named the president on election night and candidate B could be named the president a week later. That's right. In fact, uh, I saw a report today that suggests that uh, President Trump uh, very well could have a commanding lead on election night because uh, you have a tendency right now, at least in terms of when people are asked on public opinion polls, Republicans are more likely to be voting in person. So obviously their votes would be tabulated on election night. And, and those mm -hmm. would be the results that you'd see almost instantaneously as, as we are accustomed to seeing over the you know past uh, couple of decades, right? Uh, right? But if you have a large influx of mail-in votes that are needed to be counted 
days after uh, the election, uh, yes, uh, that can certainly change. I mean, this is this is nothing new for those of us who closely observe elections. I mean, I, I in fact, I believe it was wasn't it the Norm Coleman uh, Al Franken yes. race in Minnesota where yes. you had had these changes happening, you know, back and forth. So it it, it creates some um, some uncertainty in the minds of the American people, and I think that there will be those people who who tend to look suspiciously on on those changes. And so it's important for us to recognize that things will be different this year, uh, while at the same time keeping a close eye to make sure that nothing nefarious is being done. Yeah. Rob, uh, Fred Lucas wrote a good story at the Daily Signal on why Arizona looks like ground zero in the battle over election integrity. I'd love for you to say more about that. I mean, interesting enough that the uh, battle would go to Arizona. I mean, don't they have enough trouble with just the heat? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, hopefully things are cooling off now that we're moving into September. But uh, you no, never I know about Arizona. It's, it's, yeah, it's still going to be it's still going to be hot in, uh, in in Arizona for sure. Well, look, um, you know, there there are um, debates in, in in every state, but we decided to pick uh, Arizona because that's where um, you know where you have a lot of this heated rhetoric going on between the the state attorney general there. And uh, and some of the the election officials uh, who, you know, um, in some cases, these are elected positions and and you find yourself where there might be a Republican in one and a Democrat in the other. They don't necessarily agree on how to how to run uh, an election. And so what we have in Arizona is where, you know, you have these charges going back and forth between uh, the DNC and Republicans and Arizona. Of course, it doesn't help matters that it's a battleground state. So, um, you know, there are. There are some big issues uh, at, at stake, and and with Arizona being uh, in, in contention this year as uh, as as a place not only for a presidential election but a, a hotly contested Senate race, they they could con- determine control of the U.S. Senate. Uh, the the decisions that are made um, will will have a big impact, and it really comes down to I think you know this, again the the postal service is at the center of it all, Bill, and uh, and I expect it'll continue to be in terms of you know when people are getting their ballots and and you know how. Uh, how things are handled, uh, you know, through the postal service, and so uh, we, we hope that things do get sorted out. But it's it's one of those areas where we've got to keep a close eye on things, and why I think you know today being um, you know National Poll Worker Day, I, I know my colleagues again at Heritage Action are making a big push to get as, as as many conservatives and Christians out to volunteer, and sometimes cases get paid for these positions uh, because we really need as many people on the ground uh, helping out on election day as possible. Mm-hmm. We only have a minute left, Rob, so I'm putting the pressure on you. But there was a university professor, Nicholas Merriweather, was written up for declining to comply with the male student's demand to be referred to as a female. Do professors, uh, what about their their right to the First Amendment? Their right to the First Amendment. There used to be something known as academic freedom, particularly at the university level, and, and that seems to be disappearing. I mean, look, it was just last week that you and I were talking about a high school French teacher uh, right. that found himself in a similar position. So, geez, week after week, Bill, it seems that we yeah. continue to find uh, a situation like this. And so, yes, uh, it is concerning. It's one of the many things that I think is is concerning about our college campuses, uh, uh, you know, so politically correct and and uh, and deferring to this mob mentality uh, that that uh, certain individuals need to do things a certain way or otherwise they they come under pressure. Yeah, look forward to next week on the first day back to school for the kiddos, and we'll catch up. Uh, we'll catch up then. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Bill. Have a good rest of the week. You bet. Rob Bluey has been my guest, of course, executive editor at the Daily Signal. Go to DailySignal.com. 
After a short break, we'll be joined by Kim Cotola. We're going to talk about some of the pro-life issues going on today. Be right back. show so glad to welcome back kim katola no kim from faith radio and radio before faith radio and formerly of cradle my heart and author and speaker and pro-life advocate like nobody else kim welcome howdy bill how y'all doing <laughs> it's are you back in georgia you must be no <laughs> just felt like saying it that way i don't know why well, you, you sure sold it well <laughs> We're actually, we have a little uh, townhouse up here now for escaping the scorching desert, inhabitable oh, Arizona yeah. climate. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. It is hot there for sure. Well, thank you for doing the show. Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to see any of the uh, Republican National Convention. There was a lot of pro-life speakers and emphasis, uh, particularly Abby Johnson's speech. Pretty spectacular. Yeah, well, you know, Bill, I did watch it. I watched it almost wall to wall. I, I found the production so compelling that you know, we are really early birds. We usually turn in very early, and it was like, let's wait. No, we have to see this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. I mean, every single speaker, I felt, had something surprising. Almost all of them had something very surprising, thanks to our derelict media, which is never telling us important stories that all of that were brought forth. But, I mean, Abby's well-known. Her movie, uh, Unplanned, and the book that she wrote have both done very well uh, with readers and with viewers. And so she was uh, perhaps a natural fit uh, for the convention. But, yeah, she she brought the truth. And, of course, there's been a, an ongoing pushback. There was an effort to cancel her before she got there because of some deleted under, you know, video that people uncovered and tried to uh, smear her as a racist. Um, but her message was about as clear cut as it can get. And, you know, people, she, she simply said, I want you to know that this is what abortion is. And she gave a graphic description of having assisted for an ultrasound led uh, mm -hmm. uh, dilation and cure to abortion, which is, you know, involves a vacuum. And it's very, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a graphic procedure. And she spoke truth about it. Um, you know, to me, Abby was it's one of many, many stunning moments. Uh, but I think she she did a very fine job of speaking the truth when she had her opportunity to do that. And I would say the little that I watched, I thought there was an incredible emphasis on pro-life issues. Um, and I can't remember a convention in the past that had so much emphasis on uh, pro-life issues. No. Uh, it, you know, President Trump himself, in his acceptance, said children born and unborn have a God-given right to life. And if there could be a clearer articulation of the pro-life position, I don't really know what it is. And meanwhile, you have, you know, abortion rights advocates who are painting everyone who wants to defend life before birth as being anti-choice. It's all about the woman. They dehumanize the children, even in that language, 
that there's no other life involved. You just, you know, you and I just don't want women to be able to choose what they do with their bodies, Bill. That's the whole thing, you see, because we're preoccupied with women's bodies, you see. I mean, this is the mental gymnastics they engage in to justify why anyone would be opposed to abortion. They refuse to see the humanity of the children. And so, I mean, if you, you know, anti-choice disinformation is how I saw uh, some of Abby's comments characterized in mm-hmm. social media and elsewhere this week. But there was there was nothing untrue about it. You know, people have nitpicked her timeline on her personal testimony, and they've nitpicked other things. But as to the truth of what abortion is and what it does to the children who die from it, she was there's nothing that you can challenge as to the truthfulness of it. Mm-hmm. I, I also, one of the people who so impressed me was Sister, uh, Sister Deidre Byrne, who is, right, uh, a soldier, a sister, and a doctor. Yeah. I mean, she is bad to the bone. <laughs> she, she is. I watched that. I watched it twice. I went back online and watched it oh. a second time. Oh, my goodness. I mean, talking about irrefutable. You know, and she said, as a physician, I can say without hesitation, life begins at conception. And, of -hmm. course, the cowards who are taking cheap shots at at Abby know better than to try to challenge the moral ground that this woman is occupying because it's there is no challenge to it. And, you know, she also talked about the unborn being the most marginalized group in uh, the world. And she's talking about refugees as a lead in to that. But. She said her quote here, as Christians, we first met Jesus as a stirring embryo in the womb of an unwed mother and saw him born nine months later in the poverty of the cave. I mean, if you if you can't, if her words don't break through some kind of a veil of a hardened heart, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what it is that will reach you. Um, Nicholas Sandman was talking about having been standing for the unborn when as a teenager he was you know uh caught up in the media storm that was you know the cnn yeah and uh washington post uh media malfeasance but that's a pro-life story too he was there at the march for life to defend unborn life and so uh, yeah it was an extremely pro-life event and i i think it was um I, I just was very, very impressed and happy to see it. When I go back to the sister, Kim, I, one of the lines that she gave, which I loved, was, uh, not a, only am I pro-life, I'm pro-eternal life. Yes, yes. And she, you know, didn't you, Bill, I really hope that if you or I are ever asked to speak at a national event, <laughs> right, yeah. that we have a chance to evangelize as she did. No kidding. She was like, I stand for this because I don't want, you know, because I'm concerned about your eternal life. And when she said it was so much grace yeah. and, you know, and with such simplicity, she trusted in God and the Holy Spirit to bring the message home. And that's all really that God asks of any of us. And I love the comment she made about, you know, when she was supposed to talk about herself and she said, well, you know, my order doesn't really allow me to talk about myself. And I go, oh, no, sister, you're so interesting. I want to hear more about you. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, she, she said, look, you if you want to talk about Donald Trump versus his opponents, 
She said Biden-Harris are the most anti-life presidential ticket ever, even supporting the horrors of late-term abortion and infanticide. And they always scream whenever anybody points out that truth. But again, their records speak for themselves, and they cannot take back what they've already voted for, campaigned upon, and absolutely supported in action and in words. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting with uh, COVID and all the quarantining that's going on, I would imagine in the next uh, six or, or 10 months, there's going to be not only fewer births, but fewer abortions. Is that fair? Uh, maybe. I mean, I haven't seen an analysis of that, but it, that makes a lot of common sense. You know, mm-hmm. um, although many people pointed out at the convention that I think uh, Ronna McDaniel, the chair of the party, pointed out that, you know, uh, abortion businesses were seen as essential while churches were not oh, during most of the state yeah. during most of the statewide lockdowns. So, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if we'll see any dip in the abortion numbers at all or not, because they weren't, there was no, you know, they, they have some very powerful and influential friends at the state house and at the U S Capitol. And they were able to persuade that it was an essential, you know, healthcare service that they're providing. Uh huh. Oh, so is there any updates in the planned uh, pregnancy that David Daleiden case? Well, David uh, was on Tucker Carlson recently and he's, you know, he's, suing Kamala Harris. And, I didn't know uh, that. Yes, and her successor, Xavier Becerra, as well as Planned Parenthood of California. And he alleges in his suit that they, uh, you know, harassed him and for the purpose of abridging his, you know, First and Second or 14th Amendment rights, uh, his right to free speech, as well as his right to you know, practice the citizen journalism that he did when he went undercover to, you know, videotape Planned Parenthood executives doing their trades illegally in uh, trafficking in fetal remains. There's a federal law against that. And his videos clearly showed that that is what they do. Uh, You know, in at least a half dozen individual cases over and over and over again at their conventions. And um, Kamala Harris brought 11 investigators into his one-bedroom apartment, Bill, to seize the evidence. Yes. It was such an overreach. I didn't know any of that. Oh, she, well, Planned Parenthood is one of her biggest donors. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, uh, Oreck, who should have recused himself again because of being involved with donors, there's some evidence that exists uh, that she collaborated with Planned Parenthood to rewrite the laws so that nobody could ever go and tape anything that's happening in a reproductive health care setting as they like to fashion themselves. So, yeah, I mean, he is that's an active lawsuit that I believe was brought in May of this year. So I don't have anything. I don't have an update as to what's happening with it. But if you're interested in Kamala Harris and her aggressive anti-life actions uh, as a politician, I urge you to go to the March for Life page. They have an article up, uh, Five Things You Didn't Know About Kamala Harris. And it goes way beyond the Center for Medical Progress. Um, but she has supported using the federal government to under overturn, that is, hundreds of laws that the states have enacted to protect life before birth. 
you know, so if you if you say to yourself, well, you know, she's running as vice president of the United States, it's not really going to have that much of an impact on policy. She's an extremely savvy um, government official, you know, and so the way that she had utilized her position as attorney general and then as senator, um, I think it would be foolish for anybody to underestimate what she might be able to do in that office. Mm hmm. They went after uh, David Delight, though, with uh, all their power, didn't they? They, they did, and it, it, it was absolutely disproportionate, and it, I believe yeah. it was absolutely politically motivated. I mean, the emails exist that show that her office collaborated with Planned Parenthood, which is clearly a conflict of interest, uh, to produce legislation that targeted David Delighton individually uh, because he was exposing the trafficking of fetal remains by Planned Parenthood. And just think of this, Bill. They never refuted. They never refuted the evidence he brought forward. So they, as an attorney general, she had the opportunity to go after the traffickers who were, again, in violation of federal laws. But instead, she abused her office to go after David Daleiden. And many have characterized her times in office as, you know, being characterized by political opportunism. And all I can say is, Having followed that case, it certainly appears that she is willing to do things like that uh, and to turn, you know, what should be a, a force for good in her office upside down. Mm-hmm. Let me take a little break. Kim Cotola is my guest. Um, if you have a question uh, for Kim, you can send a text to 877-933-2484. We can uh, ask that question on your behalf. Of course, you can remain anonymous. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Kim Cattola is my guest. Kim, when you are, are hearing some stories about how COVID-19 vaccines, they're using fetal cells uh, from aborted fetuses. Help us as believers to process this information. Well, as I understand it, um, there have been some uh, groups that have taken a bioethical stand on this as being morally acceptable, um, including um, the theologians in the Catholic Church. Uh, because the cell lines that are in use have been in use for such a very long time, uh, I think is the main reasoning that um, a greater good has been accomplished. I don't think in general Catholics engage in utilitarian theology, so I want to be very careful and let you know that I'm, I'm kind of scanning my memory and I I shouldn't probably speak about policy that I'm not completely confident of. But fetal cell lines are in almost every vaccine that's in use. Um, And so I don't, and that's the reason why many pro-life advocates, you know, are Um, anti-vaccine. You know, my feeling about it, Bill, is that... um, I think that we can in good conscience, particularly if we are protecting someone else's health by Mm -hmm. taking a vaccine. I think we can do that. 
you know, as a, as a way of protecting others, not necessarily as, you know, a, a selfish way of profiting, if you will, personally from it. But I think that, um, you know, those in the bioethics community and in the scientific community who are striving to find alternatives to human fetal cells when we're doing stem cell research, not only are having great success with that, but are providing, you know, uh, real alternatives that don't involve any bioethical dilemmas, if you will. Mm-hmm. Another uh, listener jump in uh, wondering I how think there could I, be any- by the way by the way I now that you've asked me that I want to go back and read um, thinkers like Wesley Smith and Scott Klusendorf. Uh, okay. both of those both of them have addressed this question in their writings much more thoroughly and eloquently than I just did <laughs> so, well, that's okay I kind of I I give that you a you. reference <laughs> yeah I sprung that on you it's kind of a loaded question Um uh, another uh, listener, Jeff, said, uh, how can there be any dispute with the videotapes that that David had? I can't imagine he'd lose at the federal level his well, right to do what he did. You um, know, Bill, it gets really interesting here because guess who Planned Parenthood hired to debunk those videos? The same people who created the Steele dossier. Oh, wow. Fuse, the Fusion Opposition Research Organization. So if anyone on the planet at this point believes that these folks are not politically motivated in the types of quote-unquote research that they're conducting, you're simply not paying attention. (laughs) So, of course, you know, Fusion found that, um, well, they're heavily edited. Well, it's it's misleading with the way that that they edited and so on and so forth. But they were commenting on, uh, let's say, a four-minute trailer. And when the full video was available and posted on their website as well, right? So if you edit something for time in a four-minute video, but then you also make the complete tape available, I don't think that it's fair to say that you're manipulatively or selectively or you know wrongfully editing out material. But that's what the media ran with, you know. And the media, in many cases, was uh, I think afraid to air. The video. I, I, that could be one reason why that story didn't have as much traction as it should have back in 2015 when he was releasing these videos. You know, and, and I mean, he's a true hero, in my opinion. Uh, they were trying to destroy him financially. They threatened him with fines, and so he's now got to pay, I don't know, $600,000? Yeah, it was a $600,000 bond. Right, on the because yeah. he he refused to stop publishing on YouTube the videos that you know that he had. It was more important to him that the material become public and that it see the light of day. Uh, but you know, as they were finding him, you can understand why uh, an editor at a TV station might say, "Man, I don't know if we really should pick that up and air that." Right? I mean, mm-hmm. even if, if that's the most charitable, let's say a pro-life editor might not have wanted to put his, you know, news outlet's financial interests in peril by publishing something from a citizen journalist. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, the ideology at most mainstream media outlets didn't wouldn't prevent any of them <laughs> from, from not airing something like that. So, yeah, I mean, if you go to the Center for Medical Progress, you can read more about Delayden's work and what he really uncovered and the names that he names. And, you know, it's very interesting that many of them are no longer working for Planned Parenthood. They're just, quiet, they're just quietly gone. 
Including including Cecile Richards, who's now doing, I think, some kind of voter registration uh, activities. <laughs> okay. Right? Because they yeah. really, well, well, you know, they have shown their hand time and again that uh-huh. they, they're a three-pronged uh, organization and operation. They have their 501c3 that does the pap smears and the birth control. And then they have their PAC, their political action committee. Then they also have a separate group called Planned Parenthood Votes. And so those last two are not nonprofit. Uh, and so they're not, they're not enjoined against doing any political activity. But the, as Cecile Richard testified before Congress, when the Daleiden case was active around, I think it was 2016, she, she testified, well, yes, I'm employed by all three of those entities. Part of my salary comes from all three of those entities. So it's the same person doing all of those functions, Bill, at, at every wow. level for their executives, right? And guess wow. what? It's probably the same copy machine and the <laughs> same desk and the same office space, right? Yeah. And, yet, and yet they're taking donations as a 501c3, and it's legal. I mean, they have found their legal loopholes that they can walk through. But I think it's very telling that in retiring from Planned Parenthood, she's now just working politics. Kim, I love your stories when you can share with our listeners when a woman who has recovered through the grace of God from the horrors of their abortion. I know your story is powerful, but do you have another uh, story that's maybe not yours uh, that you can share in our remaining reco- five minutes? Of recovery. Yeah, of you know, reco- it's, uh, yeah, yeah, we're always well, told that, that women, you know, that's no big deal if they get an abortion. That's what they're told. And that's just absolutely 100% not true. Oh, it's so not true, Bill. And the, I guess I would tell you a theme that I have seen when I stepped back into face-to-face ministry, having stepped away from media last year in particular. We did a number of groups. And, of course, I can't ever give any identifying details. Right. And I want to stress that anyone who pursues abortion recovery can be absolutely confident of confidentiality and privacy. That's job number one, and everybody involved in abortion recovery understands that. But there's a theme that I found, and it was very, very surprising to me, even um, at how how frequently it occurred, which is a, a God-fearing, Bible-believing, mature-in-faith woman who has had an abortion in the aftermath, whether it was five years, 10 years, 20 years later, Whatever adverse thing occurred, particularly if it's around her childbearing, uh, if she had a miscarriage, and these cases happen more often than you might think, um, but if she's had a divorce, if she's had a job loss, if she has a prodigal child, will her mind will become absolutely convinced that this is God's judgment on that abortion. And again, these are women who understand the cross, Bill. But they just believe that God is still holding it against them. And I would say, if I could just do a little bit of ministry, that, you know, (laughs) what I would often say is that, well, if God needs to punish you, then what was he doing with Christ on the cross? You know, if God is still punishing you, (laughs) and and many of them would tell me that they were assured of their salvation, and I would say, but but what is God going to do then? Give you a whipping before you get into heaven? You're in, but he's not really happy about it. You know, so it's not rational, right? It's not logical. 
they understand in their minds that this is their hearts condemning them. And in the, the process, I think, that women undergo is that um, they just cling to the loss because it's so big and no one tells them that they can grieve it. And so they get attached to the loss. And that's a very, very unhealthy place to be, both spiritually and emotionally. You know, and so, I mean, I encourage anyone who's listening to seek out abortion recovery. Um, Support After Abortion is one of the national outlets that has local referrals, and they're very, very responsive. And again, everything's absolutely confidential. Um, But, you know, you can clear up these spiritual questions for yourself, and you can you can allow the truth to heal your mind as well as the damaged emotions and the heartbreak that you might be experiencing after abortion, because it's a very common thing for women to find it just very, very difficult to let go and allow God's love to really minister to their hearts. So if they don't uh, mourn and, and process this in community, they're going to be suffering way more than they need to be. I don't know if I said that right. Absolutely. And much more than is God's plan for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a better way of saying it, Kim. I mean, well, and the thing is, Bill, I mean, it's very difficult in our society that trumpets women's rights for a woman to say, that was wrong. I need to repent and to Mm -hmm. hear the affirmation for it, especially if her church is silent. But thank God, repentance, Jesus' first message and his first sermon ever, you know, if we repent... Oh, Jesus Christ is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, that's And beautiful. then hope can begin. Yeah, Kim, thank you so much for joining the program today. It's always nice to talk to you. I always look forward to it. So thank you. Thanks for the invite, Bill. Glad to be you here. Bet. You bet. Kim Cattola has been my guest. We're going to take a little break. We've got Hour 2 coming up. Dr. Carrie Heddington will be joining me. We're going to talk about the divinity of Jesus the whole hour. I can't wait. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.